Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks so much for joining me today. Now, I recently had a chance to talk with Tanya Munz about her new book, The Dancing Bees, Carl von Frisch, and the Discovery of the Honeybee Language. This came out with University of Chicago Press in 2016. Now, not only is this a beautifully and really compellingly and engagingly written book, it's also a book that doesn't just take us into the kind of biography and the practice of experimental physiologist and bee researcher Carl von Frisch, but it also emphasizes the significance of the story of the bees themselves. So in its pages and in the conversation to come, you'll hear not just about the development and history of his science, right? His collaborative work, his ideas about bee language and the way that his experimental practices generated those ideas. You'll also hear about the importance of film and filmic work. You'll hear about the importance and you'll read about the importance of the sensory aspects of the history of science. So there are important aspects of the history of sensation that are woven into this story. And you'll hear about and read about really important elements of the historical context and the context of Nazi Germany specifically in which von Frisch was doing his work and his research. So there's a lot here. It's a fascinating book, and I will leave you to the conversation, but I hope you enjoy. I hope you get uh, your hands on a copy of the book. And in the meantime, thanks so much for spending time with us today and for your support and for listening. I'm here to talk with Tanya Munz about her new book, The Dancing Bees. Welcome to the New Books in Science, Technology, and Society podcast, Tanya. Thanks for writing an awesome book and also making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Carla. Very happy to be here. Of course. So let's start with the big, broad, traditional question of the channel. Tanya, how did you come to work in history of science specifically as an academic field? Uh, my love for the history of science started very early. Um, I was an undergrad at the University of Chicago, and I thought I would be a chemistry, I wanted to be a chemistry major. Um, but I actually, when I got to college, and I started taking college level chemistry classes, there was something about the lab that I found very stressful. Um, and so I at the end of my first year in college, I went to see my advisor. And I said, you know, I don't know what to do. I wanted to be a chemistry major. Um, I'm, I, I don't think I love chemistry the way I thought I did. Um, and I like my humanities classes. I, I think I like science. I know I like the humanities. I don't know what to do. Um, and so this woman very sort of <laughs> just by chance opened up the catalog and Set, asked me if I'd ever thought about the history of science. At Chicago, there was a, a history and philosophy of science program um, for undergrads. And she showed me the distribution requirements. And they, you know, required science classes and upper level science classes. They wanted calculus and the kind of the hard sciences that I thought I had gone there to do, they require, but then they also required humanities classes. And as I was looking at it and we talked about it, I saw that it really was a major that mixed the sciences and the humanities. Um, so I decided right then and there that I wanted to be a history science major wow. without even having taken any classes. Little did I know that so much later I would still be doing this. Um, but so I think what originally drew me to it was the fact that you can be a humanist and you can be very serious and interested in science and combine those fields. Um, and I think as I've gone along, um, I, I find that it attracts people who are really interested in a diverse set of questions. They're interested in epistemology and methodology, and they're interested in rigor, but they're also sensitive to craft and writing and sort of the more humanistic scholarly aspects of scholarship. So I, that's what attracted me initially and it's developed, but that's still what draws me to the field and what I think is really fascinating. 
Awesome. So the book that we're talking about today is a biography, but it's a dual biography. On the one hand, it is a biography of Austrian-born experimental physiologist and bee researcher, in the words of the book, Carl von Frisch. And it's also a biography of his honeybees as experimental communicating creatures. So Tanya, what brought you to this particular topic? How did you decide to work on and write about von Frisch and his bees? Um, so I, it actually started, I, I wrote a master's thesis on Darwin's theory of sexual selection. Um, and one of the things I was very interested in was what that theory demanded of animals. So in sexual selections, females have to make fine grained aesthetic decisions. Um, they have to remember preferences and they actually have to withhold mating. So in order to solve this kind of what was for Darwin and others was a vexing problem of these kind of adaptations that made no sense under natural selection, sexual selection could explain in this way. Um, so that the project I was interested in there was how scientists thought of the animal-human boundary and what what they did to set that boundary, to police that boundary, and what was required of animals to negotiate sexual selection. So that is what started me thinking about animals and humans. Um, when I was looking for a, a PhD topic, I was still interested in this question of how scientists understand animals. Um, but I wanted, you know, I was looking for something different. Um, I knew I wanted to do work in German-speaking Europe. So I was looking, I was kind of casting around for a German-speaking European topic. Um, and then I wanted to be... I wanted to be really into the science. Um, I think sometimes in science and technology studies, we can interrogate science in a way that can seem like we're questioning the science. Um, and I think that is actually the most fun when the science is really good and it's really robust and you can really push up against it. Um, so I wanted the science to be good. And then I wanted to have a good archival source. Um, and when I, my dissertation actually then ended up being about Conrad Lorenz and Carl von Frisch, um, two scientists who shared, um, a Nobel prize in 1973 with Nico Timbergen. Um, but I wrote about the two of them and I wrote about how they viewed animals and how they changed over time. Um, and as I was doing that research, I realized how amazing the archival sources were on Carl von Frisch. Mm -hmm. Um, these are kept at the State Library in Munich, and they have an incredible collection of letters, lab notebooks, reading notebooks, all kinds of things. Um, and I became increasingly fascinated with Carl von Frisch's work. I thought it was beautiful work. I thought there was very interesting politics um, in the background of his work and feeding into that work. And so then I um, decided, as one sometimes does, to kick a big chunk of the dissertation out. And for the book, I just focused on Carl von Frisch and his bees. So it sounds like there was a pretty major transformation then um, from dissertation to book. Did you want to talk about any um, of those aspects that you haven't talked about or sort of talk a little bit more about that transition? Yeah. Um, so that was indeed a, a kind of a, a really dramatic departure. I mean, I really, I had done the research for the dissertation, but I really wrote the book in a way that feels like I wrote it from scratch again. And I don't think that's uncommon. I mean, that sounds sort of horrifying and in a way it is. Um, <laughs> but I don't think it's unusual to really rethink it and to just take a new stab at the project. Um, so for me, it meant I booted Conrad Lorenz um, and I kept Carl von Frisch and I interwove stories about the honeybees. So the story I wanted to tell was Carl von Frisch's story um, and the remarkable research that he did, but then also talk about how the bees transitioned over the course of the 20th century. Um, I think for much of the for much of the um, previous centuries that people had looked at bees, it really was. You know, they were viewed in, as political animals, as their social organization is complex. There's a caste system. There was a way in which people would look to the hive as kind of models for how societies should function, how a well-run polity might function. Um, and over the course of the 20th century, as animal behavior studies become more and more concerned with issues of anthropomorphism, 
those kinds of anecdotes and stories, there was a real effort to purge animal science of that kind of rich cultural baggage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fascinating part, of course, is that they take on new baggage. (laughs) There is no science without baggage. Um, But I wanted to tell the story of how the animals transition from political animals in von Frisch's work to physiological animals, and then really to these kind of premier communicating animals in the post-war period. Mm-hmm. And so. in fact, the structure of the book, I think, really nicely does that. And so the chapters for listeners who haven't had a chance um, to take a look at the book yet, the chapters, or many of them, are interspersed with a series of vignettes, right? Bee vignettes. I think there are four of them um, that take us into the transformations, as you were just mentioning, right, uh, in how bees were understood in the popular and scientific imagination over like a long 20th century. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit as we now kind of get into the book about that decision structurally, like as a writer, um, how did you come to decide to do that? And what do you feel is important about that decision in terms of the, the book as an object? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, I think one piece, just to backtrack a little bit, I think one thing that can happen in the transition from dissertation to book, but it doesn't have to, but it's something that I chose to do is a lot of the theory that I had read in grad school and after grad school, it very much informed me. It shaped me as a scholar, um, but I was less interested in foregrounding that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right. Yeah, so makes sense. So I, I didn't want it to be theoretically naive, but I my goal was not to explicitly contribute um, to theory for the sake of contributing to theory. Mm-hmm. So it freed me up tremendously. I really wanted to st- tell a story. I wanted the writing to be engaging. I wanted to be, like I said, theoretically informed, but that was the goal was not to deliver a hard to digest or unplug. I really wanted everybody who's interested to be able to read it. Mm-hmm. So I had thought a lot. Um, I'd done a lot of reading in animal behavior studies, and I thought a lot about animal agency and um, centering stories around animals, which can upset our ideas of agency, our ideas of chronology, um, our relationship to human actors, all kinds of things. Um, And what I wanted to do in the vignettes is to tell the story of the bees in a way that was much less strict in its chronology, um, but was much more explorative and playful of the different ways in which the bees perform and act in Carl von Frisch's story. Um, by keeping it short, I wanted it to be playful. I wanted it, I just wanted to give myself license to be more creative in my writing in those pieces, always in the hopes that it's pleasant to read. You know, I mean, you never want the reader to have to indulge you as you're doing your thing. Um, but so that that's why when I came up with this idea of interspersing these interesting stories that I think are important to telling the story of the bees and they're important to understanding von Frisch and his accomplishments. I was able to do that by giving these stories their own short spaces interspersed. Mm -hmm. I think it works really well. Um, So over the course of these vignettes, and we'll talk about some of them in detail um, if we have time, we move from the first one, Victorian bees, where we're brought into changing stories of the bees comb building, their hives, and related theories about their intelligence. And then we're going to also learn about films that von Frisch made. um, And it's going to, it gets really, really interesting. Um, It is always from the first one, really interesting, but I think it adds something really cool to the storytelling here. So let's dive into the chapters, though. So chapter one takes us into the early life of von Frisch. It also introduces a kind of summer colony where he would spend some of his childhood and then return to in his later years in Austria. So because this space, um, Brunwinkel, is this? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Um, I mispronounce everything. It's my special, no, perfect. special <laughs> superpower, right? So something I'm really good at is mispronouncing things. Um, I'm very proud of that, as you can tell. But anyway, okay, so Brunwinkel, um, this becomes somewhere he spends time as a child, but it also becomes a really important experimental space for him later on, and we'll hear about that. Um, but for the time being, can you give listeners a sense of the nature of that space? So what do we need to understand about Brunwinkel as a space in order to set the stage for um, understanding its importance to fund Frisch's science and his life as we move further into the story. 
Um, that's a great question. So Brunwinkel is a place um, in a part of Austria called the Salzkammergut that's really very beautiful. It's just strikingly gorgeous. Um, and a few years ago, I went there because I wanted to see this place that had been so formative to von Frisch and his family. Um, and th his mother um, had bought the place. It was a mill house. And then they bought four other houses. So they ended up having this colony of five houses. They're still in the Von Frisch family. And they are on this gorgeous glassy lake um, with cliffs, mountains surrounding it. And it's just totally exquisite. Um, so the physical space is very striking. And it influenced the kinds of activities that Von Frisch family would engage in. And this kind of having a place to go to and spend the summers and having this cultural circle um, that would gather in this space. So part of it was this physical space and the kinds of activities, the hiking, the hunting, the observing animals, the collecting. Um, and the other place, uh, the other piece is that it was this really rich intellectual space where this kind of liberal group of intellectuals and artists would gather. Um, and I, I should say um Deborah Cohen was a historian of science as well, wrote a beautiful book where she really studies the Exner family and goes into lots of detail um, about the role of this calling on the Exner family. The Exner family, that was um, von Frisch's mother's family. So her book is called Vienna in the Age of Uncertainty. Um, and it explores the, the physical space. Um, in my case, because von Frisch does so much work with his bees and because bees, they're not like lab animals that you have in as generic of a space as possible. Um, they really are animals that need to be outside for the most part. And they're, they're studied as part of their environment. So for his work, it was incredibly important um, the the place that they were in. I mean, that said, it was not a perfect place for keeping bees. Um, you know, there were mountains. Um, there wasn't as much food as some other places where you might keep bees. Nonetheless, that's where Von Frisch kept his bees um, for decades and would spend his summers doing research on them. So in the, in the winter months, he would um, work on fish a lot of times as well, fish and bees in Munich. And then in the summer, he would go every year to Bonwinkel and work with his bees. Um, the other thing is that the space becomes a really important refuge for the family during World War One and World War II. Um, World War II plays an important part in von Frisch's own story. So that's, it again becomes really central um, to his life and his biography and the work he's able to do. Great. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm. um, so early in this chapter, early um, in the book here, we also learn about a couple of things I'm just going to name um, because they're important, but we won't talk too much about them. And this is his early intimate connection with a small Brazilian parakeet that lives with the family for about 15 years. And this becomes really important in terms of helping train him in the art of careful observation, which is a point that you make here in this part of the book. And that's going to become a skill um, that's going to be continually important throughout his life and work. And we also learn here about his early work in experimental zoology in Munich. Okay, so this takes us into chapter two. This um, chapter looks at a debate um, right from the beginning that von Frisch had with ophthalmologist Carl von Hess over whether fish and bees could see color. This is super interesting. The chapter um, includes a reproduction of a letter that von Frisch had um, written, which includes a, a little nifty doodle of von Hess's head, including this really <laughs> fabulous mustache. Um, so definitely, listeners, get a copy of the book so that for, you know, for the mustache, for the mustache, get it for the mustache. Okay. So they have this disagreement over the nature of color vision. So Tanya, can you talk a little bit about, um, just very briefly, the nature of that disagreement and like, why was that so formative for Von Frisch, um, in terms of kind of shaping some of, um, the direction of his work from there on in? Sure. Um, so it, the interesting thing, um, 
In a way, von Frisch's career is really sort of sandwiched between two debates. There's a debate very early in his career, and then there's a debate kind of at the very sort of last part of his career. And both are super important. He himself talks about that they're seminal. Um, and this is the first one. Um, this is a disagreement about whether or not certain animals have color vision. And von Hessen was much older than von Frisch and was much more established than he was and maintained that um, invertebrates and insects in fact, don't have color vision, that they're not able to see in color. Um, Von Frisch read about this research, and he had done some work on pigment changes in fish. Um, Von Von Hess also said that fish can't see in color. Um, And Von Frisch, that didn't sound right to him. He was a committed evolutionist, um, and he felt that if fish can change their coloration, it was highly unlikely, he thought, that they would not be able to perceive different colors. Um, So that's what started him on that research. He started to um, take minnows and put them on different colored backgrounds and observe how their their skin color changed. Um, And then the next thing he did was he fed fish uh, with a particular color. So it would have all these test tubes and they would have different colored pieces of paper in them and only one color would have food in it. So the fish would always be fed on that one color um, and it was, you know, like a Pavlovian conditioning experiment. Um, and then in the second round, he would just have all the different colors again, but he wouldn't have any food. Um, and then he wrote about how the fish swam up to that particular color that they had been fed on. So once um, they had been trained to a color, they were then able to discern it or pick out that color from an array of colors. So the argument that he made, and it was elegant and simple, but very compelling, was that if they can pick out a color, then surely they can see it. Um, and then just to make sure that it wasn't just about the lightness or darkness of a color, but that it really was about the hue, he would also have different grayscales um, and mix those in with that particular color. And again, he showed how fish would be able to pick out certain colors. So that's kind of what started it. Um, von Hess was very prolific, uh, much more prolific than von Frisch when it came to different organisms. Um, and von Hess wrote a piece where he also also talk, talked about bees and how bees also were not able to see in color. Now, again, because uh, von Frisch was such a committed evolutionist, this really hit a nerve with him. Um, he had read um, Konrad Sprengel's Color Theory of Flowers, and the argument there is that bees are able to perceive different colors, and that's what, in fact, attracts them as pollinators. Darwin also talks about this. He uses Spengler's work and talks about how there's an evolutionary co-adaptation. So von Frisch was very skeptical of the claim that flowers that had such an array of colors, would that those colors would not be visible to their main pollinators. Um, so that's what started him out. He did similar conditioning experiments. He set up all these different colored squares. He would feed the bees on one colored square, and then you would remove the food, shuffle around all the different colors to put them in different locations, and see where the bees landed. And he started um, with blue, and he would see the bees landing on blue, and then he tested various other colors. But the point being that the bees are able to pick out certain colors, and they will preferentially land on those colors, so make their choices known by landing on those colors after they had been fed or conditioned to associate food with those colors. He, one thing that I think was really, Von Frisch was always, I mean, I think he was a very shy man, um, but I think he was just a brilliant, brilliant speaker um, based on what people said who attended his lectures. Um, So one thing he did early in his career when he was doing this research is he traveled to a conference and he performed this experiment live with um, honeybees. So he was able to use a a hive that was there and he trained these bees to land on the blue square paper and he did it live for people. And it was, I think it was very impressive. It was, it was a, a very interesting way, um, of showcasing his work. Um, so the, a couple of things about why this wasn't just a neat kind of one-off, um, but why it was really formative to his career is that I think, and he writes about this himself, um, I think he, he recognizes, even though the dispute with Von Hess 
actually got pretty acrimonious. Um, I mean, here he was this kind of young, just starting scientist, and von Hess really slammed him. <laughs> and they went kind of back and forth and sort of, uh, you know, kind of turn up the heat on their tone. Um, but he realized that this dispute made him much more rigorous, made him much more inventive. This is when he picked up a lot of new techniques. Um, the conditioning work actually came from von Hess's work. Um, and it made him understand that uh, it's important to get people on board. It's important to convince people. So his mentor, um, Richard Hertwig, who was a very famous physiologist, actually ended up publicly vouching for him in this debate. Um, it made him very productive. He really published a lot. There was a lot of back and forth with them. Um, and it made him very careful. It made him careful of potential criticism. So in these early papers, you see him kind of talking about one might think this and object and say this, and he would address possible concerns. Um, he ended up being vindicated. I think people really came out strongly in his favor. The experimental evidence was convincing, um, and he had support by famous scientists. So I think it turned out, uh, it turned out in his favor. Um, and it gave him a lot of visibility, it gave him a lot of exposure. So I think it was important. Great. Um, so this is where he begins to work with the honeybee and an experimental organism. And this chapter also takes us into some other really key moments um, at this early stage of his career. Um, the advent of war, right? World War I interrupts his work and lectureship in Munich. And he eventually goes to work at, at a hospital in Vienna where he meets the young nurse who he eventually marries. Um, he begins experiments on the sense of smell in bees. And in 1919, he begins to work to try to understand bee communication and specifically, and here we get the dances, right? Specifically the role of the bees' mysterious dances therein. Um, so I'll also mark here for listeners who um, might be listening to you talk about uh, color, right? And smell comes up. This is also a book that's not just about Right, the history of bees, the history of von Frisch. It's also a really interesting and important, um, I think, contribution to the history of sensation. Um, and there's a lot in the book um, about sort of sensory knowledge and the way he's engaging sensation and, and working with that in his experimental practice. Um, that's really, really interesting. And this comes up in one of the vignettes, right? So he's not just um, sort of doing these experiments and uh, performing these experiments live. He's also producing films. And the second B vignette looks at a series of films that he produced in the 1920s and 30s about the sensory abilities of animals. And the, this vignette takes us into some of these films. So Tanya, one of the things that you are um, arguing in this vignette is that the films are meant um, both to train the viewer in a way, and also to establish a sense of the agency of animals um, that was critical for his work. Now, since you brought up the issue of animals and agency way at the beginning of our conversation, could you talk a little bit kind of briefly about these aspects of his films um, that you think are important for us to understand? Yes. Um, so I became really... Um, interested in his films. Um, he, in the 20s and 30s, makes a series of 16 millimeter black and white films that are just mesmerizing to watch. They're incredible. Um, and these films mostly focus on a particular sensory capacity of an animal. They're mostly about bees and about fish. Um, and they kind of walk the viewer through the, the experimental arc um, that he presents. So it would be exactly, first you see the animal kind of swimming around if it's a fish or flying around if it's a bee. And then you see von Frisch feeding the animal on a particular color or feeding it to a particular odor or feeding it with a sound accompanying the feeding. Um, and so you see the training of the animal and then you see the food being removed. And that's really where, as a viewer, you are led to see whether or not the animal can react to just the stimulus. So does the animal hear sound? Can it smell different odors? Can it taste substances? Can, I, can it see colors? The senses of the animals are being shown on these films. Um, and it's a very kind of seamless experience to watch these films. There's inner titles that tell you what's going on. So you know you're watching the conditioning, you know you're seeing the experiment, and you're being told when the animal is reacting without the food. So they're kind of structured in a similar way. And as you view them, it's a very sort of... Seamless experience for the viewer, um, but 
as I was thinking about these, or, or one of the things that struck me when watching these films was that he is using a medium that's not at all obvious, although it's in some ways very compelling. It's not an obvious way to prove or to demonstrate that animals have these sensory capacities. Um, and Carla, I know you've heard me talk about this before. I've been This is a piece that I was working on for a really long time in grad school and that I got interested in very early on in my work of Unfrish. Um, and that's the, the, the kind of paradox of him using black and white silent film that doesn't convey odors, that doesn't convey tastes to show that animals possess the capacity to see colors, to hear sounds, to taste and to smell. Um, so I became very interested structurally in how von Frisch accomplished that with the film medium that's really insensitive. I mean, there's ways in which film can register different shades and different things, but I was really curious why the, 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 the sort of the viewing of the film still felt like a compelling demonstration. Um, and one of the things um, that I argue in the book is that von Frisch associates each stimulus. He gives each stimulus a visible signature. So for odor, for example, when he's testing the bees' abilities to smell things, he uses a, an oil, a scented oil, and you can see the oil stain in the black and white film. Um, for sound, there's a film in which he trains a fish to react to sound. He has this little like trumpety flute thing <laughs> um, and he bows his head each time that he blows, presumably that he makes the sound, but he has this kind of conspicuous head bowing motion that is associated with the sound. Um, with the color, uh, when he's doing the beast color, he does it by position. You always know where the blue square is. Um, and I'm wondering if I'm forgetting one. I think that's basically it. Sound, odor. Oh, and with taste, he he does one where – this one's actually really beautiful. He shows how a fish can be trained to react to salty substance, um, but the substance goes into the water as this kind of black cloud that diffuses. So it's really conspicuous. So he's dyed the water, right? If it was just about salty water, you wouldn't have to do that. You would just squirt in salty water and you wouldn't be able to see it necessarily in the in the clear water. But he takes this inky substance and he doesn't explain it. But in the inner titles, you know that you learn to associate um, black liquid with salty. So he does this translation where he has a, a part of the film where he's ostensibly training the animal, but in fact, he's training his viewers to read these stimuli in black and white silent film. Um, and part of why I think that works so well, um, that I argue in my book, is because in a, the way he set up these films, you have the sense that the animal has agency in terms of reacting or not reacting. Um, so the first frame is always showing the animal doing kind of its thing. And then the second frame you see it or in the second piece you see it um, being trained and then you see it reacting. Um, the animal's trained, right? That first part where you're watching the training, that's already happened. Um, but it's, it trains the viewer. And because you see what the animal looks like when it's doing its own thing, you read that. The viewer reads that as the animal having agency, at least being able to either react or not react. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I was really interested in these films. They're, they're compelling and they're visually beautiful and they were very innovative. Um, he, in 1924, was the first person to use film um, at a meeting the, of the German Society for Physicians and Naturalists. So he was a really early adopter of film. Um, film was still a relatively new medium, so it was interesting for people to see. Um, and he used it in a way that, that reads sort of unproblematic and compelling. But there was a lot of filmic work that had to be done for it to be that kind of a tool, for it to be compelling in those ways. Thank you. Um, so as we move through the book and we come to the middle chapters, we come to a really important part of the work that the book is doing. Um, so the book, in addition to taking us into um, von Frisch's life and work, the bees, showing us um, the nature and significance of his experiments in all kinds of ways, the book is also showing us something about what it is and what it could be to understand a history of science under Nazi rule. Okay, and this is where the um, chapter three it really becomes um, a central part of the story. Um, and ultimately, I'll, I'll say by the end of the book, um, there's a, a call or a plea that the book makes for paying attention to science um, in a 
perhaps a more complicated way, right? A kind of a more nuanced, uh, more plural way than we might otherwise um, do or uh, write about um, under um, Nazi rule in this period. And we'll get to that, um, I hope, by the end. Okay, but here's the point of this story where in 1933, two months after Hitler takes power, the Nazis pass a law that, among other things, requires civil servants to attest to their Aryan descent. Um, so, and, and there's a really interesting discussion about the significance of how they are defining um, and categorizing or, or qualifying descent. So um, this initially impacts von Frisch um, in a number of ways. He's summoned for questioning after some of his students file complaints against him. He's deemed, quote, unfit for public speaking on behalf of the Nazi cultural agency um, that he was going to speak for for what were ultimately political reasons. And ultimately, he's deemed a second-degree crossbreed, right? So he, it's found that he actually has um, a Jewish um, heritage in his lineage. Okay, so still throughout all of this, his lab keeps up a really productive research agenda on bee physiology and other kinds of things. All right, so as we move through the story, his friends and his colleagues are attempting to keep him from being ousted from his position on the basis of his apparent Jewish heritage. And those, um, interestingly, and this is something that comes up in chapter four, those who are ultimately most helpful for him were less theoretical, um, theoretically oriented scientists and more applied science oriented practitioners. Now, once he understands this, it importantly shifts his strategy. And the book shows us the way this plays out um, in terms of his recruitment of allies, um, the kinds of things he's publishing, and potentially also um, the kinds of films that he's producing um, and the way his textbooks are written. So Tanya, can you say a little bit about this? Um, how is his strategy in terms of how he's communicating and potentially conducting his science um, impacted by his efforts to, um, you know, to basically get allies to support him so that he can continue doing his work. Yeah. Um, so this really, um, this is another way just to, to touch on an earlier um, converse or an earlier part of our conversation when we talked about kind of the change from the dissertation to the book. Um, in the dissertation, I talk about the Nazi aspect of the work much, much less. Um, and it's something that was, and it's both um, relevant to Conrad Lorenz and to Carl von Frisch's lives, although in very different ways. Um, as I started working on the book, it increasingly became clear to me how important this was to under or how important it is to understanding Carl von Frisch's life and how central it is to understanding his work. Um, so it really becomes kind of the story that I tell, right? It's sort of the most important aspect of the book for understanding what he did and what kind of a person he was. Um, he just uh, it, just to touch on some of the details in 1941, um, which is late if we think about the Nazi chronology and we think about kind of the efforts to identify identify Jews and to sequester them and then ultimately to deport or murder them. Um, in Von Frisch finds out that he's, or Von Frisch is declared Jewish kind of late um, in that chronology. He's declared Jewish in January in 1941. Um, the borders have closed at that point. Many, many people have been, been identified far earlier. Um, so he gets a notice um, from the president of the university who's been notified um, by the Nazi Ministry of Education that Karl Von Frisch is a second degree crossbreed. Um, and that term at the time, it meant that he had one Jewish grandparent. Um, in Von Frisch's case, it was his maternal grandmother, the Exner grandmother. Um, but it also that just that terminology, second degree crossbreed kind of speaks volumes to the to the Nazi view of Judaism, right? It becomes about about descent. And it's not about culture. It's not about practice, really. It really is about a, 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 a genealogic description of um, of Judaism. So Karl von Frisch is declared Jewish. Um, there's immediate threats to his position. He's notified that he's going to be forced into retirement. Um, and from that moment on, from early 1941 on, von Frisch um, vigorously fights for his job. He wants to keep, he wants to continue his research and he mobilizes different people um, to, to help him keep his job. 
Um, he ends up, and you alluded to this, Carla, um, he ends up really revamping his work. He Previously, his work was very theoretically driven. It was about sensory physiology, and he followed kind of from one research question to the other as he deemed them important and interesting. Um, he shifts tactic, and he starts to do very practically oriented work and explicitly relevant work to um, the government. He makes a case, he revamps his lab work, and he makes a case that his work is critical to the war effort because at the time the bees, there was a bee plague in Central Europe and German bee populations had really been plummeting. So in some ways, I think that's very resonant to when we think about hive collapse syndrome that's been very much on our radar in the last years. Um, there was this kind of crisis that that um, was sounded about the bees dying. Um, and the kind of larger history, I think, here becomes really relevant because even though bee research in a way seems very esoteric, it once again became apparent how critical bees are to the food supply, right? Just like now, we're very aware of it. Um, this was a moment in time when people were once again reminded of their reliance on honeybees. Um, Germany had given up on the idea of a short, brief war and really had transitioned into a war of attrition where food was really critical. Um, and, and just as kind of for the larger narrative of, of German history, ever since World War One, food politics was really central to German mobilization and how Germany thought of their humiliation in World War One. right? The narrative was that because of the British blockade, the Germans were starving, and in part, this is why they lost the war. Mm-hmm. So as Hitler was ramping up for war and violating the Versailles Treaty in all kinds of ways, food became very, very central to the politics. So the idea that you wouldn't want to import foods, that you would want to be self-sufficient and that you expand eastward to secure more food for the German Reich was really central to the ideology. Um, so von Frisch made a case that he shifted the work in his lab to investigate this bee plague. Um, he didn't know much about agriculture. He didn't really know much about bee diseases. You know, he really had not been a practical bee scientist until this point. But he shifts his own agenda. He shifts his resources. His students start working on this problem. And he ends up successfully lobbying um, the Nazi Ministry of Food and Agriculture um, to argue in his favor. And the Nazi Ministry of Food and Agriculture ends up getting him, getting his retirement pushed out, allowing him to continue his work and actually getting him funding um, to do his work. So you, and and this is, you know, we, Carla, as you mentioned, Carl von Frisch in the early 20s um, has a theory about how the bee language, the honeybee dance language works. Um, He ends up revisiting this problem um, during World War II and totally revamping that theory. Um, It's the second version of the bee language for which he receives a share of the Nobel Prize in 1973. And that really gives us a, a kind of an incredibly vexing and interesting paradox of somebody getting a Nobel Prize in the post-war period for research that was done during World War II with funding from the Nazi Ministry of Food and Agriculture by someone who was declared a quarter Jewish by the Nazi government. So that's kind of the kind of the question that I thought was just so interesting. Like here he is doing this work. Here he is finding out, cracking the the bee dance language with money from the Nazi Ministry of Food and Agriculture. And he would, who knows if he would have picked up this question again in this way, if it hadn't been for this kind of these larger forces at work and and the kind of lobbying that he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's such a fascinating part of the story and listeners who are particularly interested also in how this might play out um, in terms of his film work, right? There's a vignette that looks um, specifically at this. The Bee Vignette 3, Deep Mm -hmm. Inside the Hive, looks at um, his production of a film between 1942 and 44 that, um, as this vignette shows, helps us understand perhaps how the bee volk um, had come to stand in for humans, right? Um, And you consider how we might understand the film as incorporating a kind of propagandistic element, right? It's produced Mm -hmm. at the height of the Nazi campaign against the Jews. And so it's another really interesting place where um, film becomes really important to the work that the book does. And and I just want to mention this for listeners who might not you know, immediately know that that's there. There's a lot of really interesting film work too in the book. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so as we move forward, right, and we're going to do this at a relatively mm-hmm. rapid clip, there's a lot going on um, in the second part of the book or in the later chapters. Um, as you already described, um, he flees the bombing of Munich and is doing really important formative work on distance communication, right, and the dances. Uh, as he heads back to Brunfinkel, um, his work develops in really important ways, and we see in the later chapters also the impact of um, the American military around Arriving on the scene after the war, 1945, chapter six um, specifically looks at this and takes us into um, a kind of moment where um, Arthur Hassler and colleagues visit von Frisch in um, Brunfinkel. He had been a fan of von Frisch's work on the sensory physiology of fish. Um, and you talk about here not just the ways that von Frisch's work is developing. He starts um, thinking about the connection between the sun and the angle of the dances, but also the broader context of what's happening um, after the war as Germans who had had to stand trial to determine their potential collaboration with um, the Nazis um, in this series of trials. Um, and so there's a really interesting aspect of the story that plays out. Um, And here, this is specifically in chapter six. And then there's a whole chapter that looks at, um, again, really fascinatingly, von Frisch and his wife traveling to the U.S. on a kind of grand tour. Um, And I just want to make a shout out to the work of Donald Griffin that comes up here. When I was an undergrad, I remember going in a canoe. This is like the first time I'd ever been in a canoe in some like lake somewhere with a friend who was working on beaver behavior stuff for Donald Griffin. So I was like, oh, this is so great. This brings me back. That sounds very romantic. Yeah, it does, right? I mean, it does. So it makes me think about beavers and canoes and and, uh, college. Okay. (laughs) But this also brings us to um, the fourth vignette. And I want to ask you to talk a little bit about this because it's such a striking moment in the book. Um, This is a vignette that looks at the significance and importance of observation, right? This was something that came up at the very beginning of the book um, when we were in the beginning of our conversation, we were talking a little bit about um, the significance of this parakeet, right, who lived with uh, the young von Frisch and his family, and he learns to kind of carefully observe animals. Here, um, you're, ta- you're taking us through a moment or a series of moments in the observation of bees. And specifically, there's this amazing scene where these two guys, right, um, Swiss naturalist Huber and his assistant, um, Francis Burnins, I think, in the late 18th century, are trying to observe the impregnation of a queen bee. So this is a moment that's so interesting in part because this is about like not only trying to observe that which is like outside of your visual reach, but also one of the guys is blind. (laughs) So Tanya, can you talk very briefly about this entirely selfishly because I think it's so fascinating and I just kind of want to hear more about it. Isn't it an amazing story? Oh my God, it's so great. Yeah. And here, and what's so amazing, what I love about it, this is, you know, so Francois Huber was um, a somebody who became blind. Um, he was born with vision and had vision into his teens um, and then gradually lost his vision. Um, and he takes on this assistant, Francis Burnens, who originally was supposed to just kind of read to him and be kind of a companion. He There's kind of an educational difference, um, a socioeconomic difference between the two. But Burnens ends up being really Huber's intellectual partner. Um, and he really ends up being Huber's eyes. Um, and so what I wanted to do, first of all, I think it's incredible. I think it's an unbelievable story. Um, So I wanted to bring the story I wanted to tell this story um, for selfish reasons of my own. Um, But I was so struck by the fact that von Frisch looked to Huber as being sort of, if Huber said that the observation is right, then it must be right. So so von Frisch took some pride, who himself was such a careful observer. (laughs) So the irony of him talking about this blind man being kind of giving the imprimatur on his, the the kind of sanctioning his own observation, I just thought was really interesting. Um, One of the things that Huber is known for is what's called the book hive. Um, And this is a hive where the the um, combs are sandwiched between glass and you can 
page through them like through a book. So again, it's all about being able to observe the bees, right? The hive is notoriously difficult. It's a difficult space in which to observe bees because it's dark. It's this confusing, tangled mash of animals. The worker bees all look the same. The drones all look the same. The only individual that you really can recognize is the queen. But even so, it's like this kind of very difficult to observe space. So throughout the story of Von Frisch, vision and being able to see whether it's by simple techniques like dotting the bees in order to number them, or it's by using film to show them or photography, it's always an issue. Um, and this, this vignette in particular is a place where I really felt like I, as a scholar, um, was very influenced by people working on um, the history of scientific observation. And Carla, I know that this is some of the work that you also love and adore. Um, so that's a place where I really felt like I could bring in some of the work that Lorraine Daston and others had done and and do it in in kind of in a way that I think even somebody who doesn't come from the history of science would find it really fascinating and would understand why that's important work all framed through throughout by this kind of narrative arc of how observing bees has been critical to understanding bees. And there were particular challenges to seeing bees that have stood in the way of how humans have understood the bees. Um, in the case of Huber and Burnham's, what was so fascinating is that they're the ones who figured out that the queen gets mated in the air. Um, so, so bee... Bee sex, if you will, has always been a mystery because nobody saw bees copulating. And there was some dispute, you know, is the queen male? Is it female? What about the drones? They seem so useless. Surely they can't be males. They don't have the weapons. <laughs> the worker bees seem so much more with it. They do all the work. Like all these kinds of sex politics that, that have been explored over the centuries in the hive. Um, one of the things that was really vexing to observers for centuries was, you know, how does bee, how do bees mate? Is it spontaneous generation? Is it, you know, where is it happening? And kind of how does this work? So that's why I thought this story was so interesting that somebody who was blind was working very closely with somebody who was able to see, but somebody who was blind was basically the person able to imagine that mating occurs in the in the sky where in fact you can't see it, right? Science wants to see, in order for it to be empirical, one way or another, science wants to see it. Otherwise, it's very kind of fretful or scientists are fretful. So I think this was such an interesting story of the role of creativity and imagination um, in this incredible relationship of these two men. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And also, one of the other reasons that I really like this vignette is that you mention the work of Realmuir, um, which immediately mm -hmm. makes me think of Mary Terrell's Catching Nature yes. in the Act, Thank which you. is awesome yeah. because of frog pants. Because <laughs> that is the book about frog pants. And I'm not going to say anything more about it <laughs> so that listeners can go themselves, but frog pants. So, yes. yes. So as we move, um, Tanya, through um, the later chapters of the book, there's a chapter that looks at this second pivotal debate that you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation. This is chapter eight, and it looks at von Frisch's efforts to respond to an attack on his theory of bee dance language very late in his life. Now, this initial attack comes in uh, 1967 from two American scientists, and the nature of the disagreement, um, long story short, hinges on a couple of different things um, that operate, as you show here in this chapter, on kind of different scales. And I'll just kind of name them um, so that uh, for listeners, and then we'll move on, but um, one of them is the the relative role of odor versus dance um, in bee communication. And then the other, which is at a somewhat different scale here, but very important, um, is that these two different um, ways of thinking about bee communication are really representing different paradigms, as you show here, of animal communication. On the one hand, um, von Frisch uh, treating bees and thinking about bees as creatures capable of remarkable feats, as you put it here, um, versus, on the other hand, understanding bees as simple stimulus response organisms. So this is a really kind of pivotal argument as well for giving us a picture of very different ways of understanding um, and engaging with the nature of the creature, the nature of animals um, in this period. So it's really great in chapter eight. Okay, but I need, I can't let you go um, before I ask you about 18060, Tanya. 
So in the conclusion, which is called 180 over 60, you talk about your experience looking at the journals of von Frisch in the State Library in Munich. Now, the last journal that you describe looking at contains scribbles of blood pressure readings. And so one of them is, this is where the title of the conclusion comes from, 180 over 60. Tanya, can you say a little bit about the significance of this final um, journal for you um, and of the the fact that there are um, von Frisch's own blood pressure readings in this journal? What's going on there um, in his life and what's going on in terms of your encounter and engagement with this story? Um, so, you know, as you know, um, when you spend a lot of time in archival sources, um, and you spend a lot of time with, with your research, you end up being, um, kind of intimate with your topic or with your person that you're working on in, in very odd and unexpected ways. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to convey in the book for people who, Historians of science, I think this is one of the things that we love or just historians that we love about our craft, but also for people who might be scientists or might be just interested lay readers. Um, one of the things I wanted to convey was that the 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 kind of incredible intimacy and the the privilege that it is to spend this amount of time with someone. Um, in the case of Von Frisch, I, you know, the archive in Munich, it has letters that he wrote when he was just a kid and he has this kind of shaky kitty script um, to later letters and journals in this case that are just days before his death. Um, so you end up spending decades with or you spend so much time with him over the course of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the case of Von Frisch, I think what was so interesting about that journal, so first when I looked at it, I was used to looking at his lab notebooks and his other kinds of notebooks. When I looked at it, I actually at first didn't realize what it was. Um, but then there were kind of medical descriptions and procedures. And I realized that these columns and dates were him taking daily, mechanically, blood pressure readings very close to what ended up being his death. Um, and, and so one of the things I was really struck by is here's this scientist who had a long life and a long career. Um, but in even until the very end, he sort of has this very scientific gaze. It was a very kind of dispassionate way of observing yourself. Um, and I was very struck by that. And it's something that, you know, as I wrote about him during the Nazi period, I constantly struggled with, okay, who was he as a man? Here he was in these difficult circumstances on the one hand, he's trying to help various people in his lab and other people out. On the other hand, he is very determined to save his job, right? So I, I was constantly kind of struggling with, you know, it, he's he's he has small moments of resistance. He's not a resistor. He's not a collaborator, right? Like this kind of historiography that talks about collaboration and resistance, like this binary. Even if we don't buy into that, it's really complex to navigate this kind of emotional terrain. Um, and I think in the case of scientists during World War II, the historiography has been very critical and really holding people to task who after the war talked about, oh, I was not into politics. I just did my science. Um, and rightfully so, right? That is a claim that should be pushed against. Um, in the case of Von Frisch, I always wanted to be fair. Um, I wanted to be balanced. Um, and I wanted to understand the man. But there were these moments where I thought, wow, he's just interested in this. He's just interested in, in his blood pressure reading uh, or blood pressure readings. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, if we if we just focus on that and we just buy into that part of the narrative, we really miss out on the very deep complexity of personal choices, of biography, of how people navigated um, the circumstances in which they found themselves. So, so for me, that kind of final chapter and that final moment of his life and my kind of final confrontation with what he left behind was, was emotional, it was complicated, and it was really interesting. So Tanya, thank, this is kind of a perfect way, I think, to come to our conclusion um, from the conclusion of the book. Um, and I'll, I'll just mention also for listeners that there's a really interesting discussion in this conclusion of precisely um, what you were just talking about in the way that that might help us rethink how we approach German sciences in the Nazi period. So this also becomes kind of a reflection on um, historiographical approaches as well as like all the things that you've been talking about. And I really appreciated that about the work that the conclusion is doing. 
So um, now that we're at our conclusion, there's so much that we haven't had a chance to talk about, right? There's a lot going on in the book um, that we didn't get to. But given that, Tanya, is there anything in in, uh, particular, anything specific that um, you'd like to mention for listeners before we close? Um, So let me ask you, um, do you do you think it'd be worth just very quickly explaining how von Frisch thought the dance language worked? Sure. Yeah, let's do that. So let's do that. Yes, yes. Let me do it very quickly. So it's a little bit, uh, it's a bit more challenging to do it without a visual. (laughs) Um, But base and people may be familiar with it, but I just thought it's worth saying in Von Frisch's final version of how the honeybee dance language worked, the kind of two most basic pieces were that the dances, the waggle dance encodes distance and direction. And what he argued was that when bees fly out to a food source, they come back to the hive and they make this figure eight waggle dance and the information of distance and direction is contained in that dance. So when they fly out, the angle they make with the sun, once they're back in the hive and they run their dance, their figure eight dance, they transpose that same angle that they flew with the sun with the vertical of the hive. So the angle of the dance um, is correlates with the direction. And then the other piece that he found out was that the speed with which the bees dance their their dances indicates the distance. So the faster they dance, the closer a food source. Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And the book actually does like a really good job also of showing the ways in which um, his theories about these dances and their significance change over time, right? With really great um, diagrams and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So Tanya, now that the book is out and congratulations on a fascinating book and really beautifully written book as well. Um, I I mean that, I think I need to say that because that's one of the really striking things. Um, And one of the things I really loved about it. What is next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by? Uh, So I'm still very tired from finishing the book. (laughs) Um, But I've become, I, okay, let me say this. I'm interested in collecting um, and I'm interested in birds in particular, and I'm interested in the the valuation of nature. So how historically, how we valued um, nature, what work is done to either think it's valuable or not valuable, and particular thinking about that in terms of birds and bird collecting. So from the bees to the birds. From the bees to the birds. (laughs) Great. Thank you so much, Tanya. It's really been a pleasure and best of luck with that work as well. Thanks for taking time away from that to talk with me about the bees. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Thanks, Carla. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very, very much for joining us and we'll catch you next time.